This episode is brought to you by the Film Festival Secrets Vault, a repository of film festival knowledge where I have gathered 95% of everything I've ever written, said, created, <laughs> uh, curated about uh, film festivals over the last decade. It includes the full text of my book, Film Festival Secrets. It includes most of my online courses. It includes audio. It includes video. It also includes access to a private community of uh, your peers, your fellow filmmakers, uh, other subscribers, uh, festival mentors, and me, uh, all people who can answer your festival questions and are there to talk about everything that's in the vault. Uh, it's a subscription service. Uh, so as long as you're a subscriber, you'll have access to all the stuff. Um, even if you subscribe just for a month, you can download all the eBooks and that, then that's all yours to keep. But if you stay subscribed, you get all the new stuff, all the updates. It's, you know, it's a pretty darn good deal. Starts at $15 a month. If you prepay for a year, you can get that down to $6 a month. You know, I designed it to be pretty much the best money you could ever spend on, uh, you know, upping your festival game. So check that out. It's at filmfestivalsecrets.com slash vault. Or if you're on the Film Festival Secrets website, you just click join at the top right hand corner. So today I'm talking with Brad Wilkie, who is uh, one of the founders and very smart people at Smart House Creative and also a features program for the Seattle International Film Festival, uh, which is really, really big and um, long festival, isn't it, Brad? Yes. Uh, SIF is by both length of time that it runs and number of films that are screened the largest film festival in North America. It goes for 25 days and we screen, you know, approximately, I would say on average each year, just over 400 uh, shorts and features. So there's a lot to see. And as a programmer, it really feels uh, like a marathon <laughs> that you're, that you're running. I mean, most festivals are four or five days to maybe 12 or 13 days. So you're usually tapping out about two weeks at the most. And SIF goes for, you know, three and a half weeks, just over, just under three and a half weeks. So there's a, that's a huge, that's a huge difference. So, uh, it, you know, you get, you get winded there on by about day 10 when you realize that you still have 15 days to go. <laughs> I think I would insist either on being issued Prozac or a cyanide capsule. Yeah. <laughs> right. I, I think that's good. You know, and one of the, the great things is our uh, director of programming, Beth Barrett, she, uh, you know, does a daily email with some cat videos and, uh, you know, like kind of like a pep talk and, you know, changes to the schedule and everything, but, uh, also about like not overdoing it at the parties and making sure you're hydrated and eating and getting your laundry done and all those kind of things. So, uh, you know, SIF does its best to, uh, to make sure that everybody is prepared or, you know, ha has like a a handle on their, their life as the, the festival rolls on. You kind of have to, I mean, there, there is a, an old saw in the festival world that it's a, it's a marathon, not a sprint, but yours really is a marathon. So that's yes, impressive. Um, how did you fall in with the, the folks at, at Seattle? I mean, I, it, it sounds like there's a fairly expansive programming team. Um, how do you fit in? So our programming team, I, I'd say there's at least, uh, 12 seasonal programmers and then Beth and Carl, uh, Carl Spence, our artistic director, 
and Megan Leonard, who's our program coordinator, those are those are more those are full time year round positions. So I fell into it. Um, I didn't know it was a job really that somebody could have. Like so, I'd been you know making films and you know short films and you know playing and you know going to festivals and you know it, in part of my mind, I, I thought that was you know just something that people did for fun. I didn't you know it, it, it dawned on me all of a sudden when I was asked to make a, a short. Uh, called a fly film for SIF, which is kind of like a 48 hour film challenge, but they pick uh, three or four local Seattle directors and then give them the resources and uh, sort of the, the in-kind things that they'll need to make a film. And you get five days to shoot five days to edit, and then two days to post-produce and then it premieres at the festival. So that year the short filmmakers in the fly film program were asked to be on the jury for the future wave shorts, which is uh SIF's 18 and under program. So as part of that process, we had to watch movies and I was watching them with Dustin Casper, who is SIF's education manager and also programs, the youth uh, sections. And after that process was done, you know, I just asked, I said, how do you, you know, how do you become a programmer? I'm, I'm kind of interested in that. Like, what are the, what are the steps so what happened was I, I started as a, a pre-screener, which is usually the first step in the process of becoming a programmer is that you volunteer as a pre-screener. As a pre-screener, you watch all, you know, submissions, like you're like kind of like the first filter or the first wave uh, that a filmmaker might encounter after they submit their film to a festival. So um, I did that for a year and then, SIF ended up having an opening on their programming team and I was, I was being pretty proactive about it. And I said, you know, I'd like to move from the, the pre-screener, you know, into the programming, uh, you know, official programmer. And they're like, well, that's, that's good because you were the person that we were going to ask to come in and uh, be a programmer. So, you know, it's a combination of timing, I think. And, and then also just being, you know, proactive and really trying to take, you know, an active and, you know, focused role in, you know, moving that part of your career forward, if that's what you want to do. And then, so that was probably like 2008. So I think now that I've, you know, I've been a programmer with SIF for about eight years. And since then, I've also started uh, pre-screening for Sundance. So that's, you know, that's, that's a paid job. But, you know, in, in that case, again, it is that first wave. So you're seeing, you know, all the stuff that's submitted because I think programmers sometimes they may see some submissions, but usually they're seeing stuff that's, that's been watched at least once by (coughs) a pre-screener or, you know, somebody has, you know, passed it along. So it's, it's interesting. It's different almost for, I think it's different probably for every festival, but there are also a lot of similarities among festivals around the country. So that's kind of how it started for me. And then, you know, I've, I've been there, you know, like I said, for eight years and in that time of, you know, started the the catalyst program and, you know, SIF has always given me a lot of creative leeway to, you know, to kind of build uh, infrastructure and build programs and focus on areas within new American cinema, which is my focus area as SIF calls it. So uh, that's, that's, that's the basic, you know, the gist of it. 
Sure. Um, how much time do you devote to that? I mean, you have to split your time between Smart House and, and SIF. What's that balance like? Well, it kind of is, uh, you know, it's, it's not so clear, really, um, you know, how many hours are spent. Because I think if I ever figured out how many hours I spend watching movies or responding to emails or, you know, just being a representative of SIF, I, you know, I think it would be like 25 cents an hour or something like that. So um, I, I'd say that I probably, you know, watch like 150 movies. I don't do any shorts. So I, you know, watch 150 movies and, you know, I'll, the, the blending between SIF and Smart House work is very uh, kind of fluid because, you know, I, I feel like a lot of times like I'm not, you know, quote unquote working because I'm enjoying, I like, I have such a passion for what I'm doing on either side, you know, watching movies and, and, you know, working with filmmakers to get their movies, you know, a bigger audience or trying. And I feel like those are all kind of connected because I see so many of the films that are out there each year that it kind of just, you know, it's like reading screenplays, you know, it's like you read bad screenplays. It, it helps you write better. And I think, seeing movies that, that have structural issues or, you know, don't come together like they're, you know, that we're expected to, like, I think that also helps to be able to figure out, you know, more clearly and, and kind of hone that gut instinct on which movies work, you know, and which movies will work for an audience. So, you know, I think that's, you know, cause I, when I approach a, a film that I'm watching as a screener or a programmer, I want to like it. So I don't approach it as, you know, I think there's kind of two ways you could look at it. One way is like, all right, you know, independent film, show me what you got. Like, you know, make me, you know, prove to me that you're worthy. Whereas in my case, I kind of look at it and say like, man, I can't wait to watch this movie because I'm going to discover a new voice or I'm going to, you know, have my mind blown by, by, a, you know, a new director or something. And then as the film goes on, it's more like, it, it just doesn't live up to that expectation or, you know, it kind of chips away at that ideal. So, you know, I go in wanting to like the movie and wanting to see something that's going to surprise or impress or, you know, just make me think differently. Um, you know, so, so I think that's, that's one way is just to, you know, I, I, I don't know, like uh, I talk to a lot of programmers and the ones I talk to all, you know, and who become friends seem to, approach it in a similar way. Like they don't want to, um, you know, they I don't think they get any joy out of rejecting. I mean, I don't think anybody gets any joy out of rejecting a film from a festival, which is such a, a harsh word or passing on it, you know, however you want to say it. But, you know, I think the, the real fun, and I'm usually pretty transparent about that. Like, you know, I'll talk to filmmakers, especially ones that have played at SIF in the past or that I have a relationship with. And, you know, their film just doesn't make the cut for whatever reason, you know, those are phone calls that I'll make too. And those are, you know, I don't look forward to those at all, but I feel like every time I've called a filmmaker to kind of break the news personally that they're, you know, won't be playing that has only ever uh, strengthened the relationship. So it's interesting. Well, I think it's one of the more overlooked parts of the process by festivals that, you know, it, even though you can only do it for a small number of filmmakers, 
you, you simply can't call all 700 or 5,000 or however many you get um, right. that if you do feel like there are people who are on the cusp, right, who almost made it, those people deserve something. They deserve an email. They deserve a phone call, whatever it is, to let them know because otherwise they're getting what everybody else gets, which is a black hole of I gave you my money, I gave you my movie, and I got nothing. Yes. I got, I got a big no and that was it. And that's extremely frustrating. Um, I did a survey on behalf of the Atlanta film festival a couple of years ago, um, asking filmmakers, if you had a programmer in a room and you could ask them one question, what would that question be? And the question was basically, what did you think of my movie? <laughs> right. <laughs> you yeah. better, why don't you tell me what you think of my movie? So, you know, Filmmakers crave that feedback, and unfortunately, logistically, it's not possible to give it to everyone, but it's really encouraging to hear that you do make some of those phone calls. Um, and obviously, it's not malicious on the part of every, every festival, but I think more people overlook it than, than probably realize. Yeah, I think you're right. It's not logistically possible to, uh, to do that for everyone, and I think oftentimes uh, what festivals perceived to be, uh, you know, like a, a, a nice rejection letter, uh, you know, is taken so personally by filmmakers, especially if they have made a, a good or a pretty good film and it was on the cusp, it was on the fence. I think that can be really disheartening having been there myself, you know, on both sides of the, that email, that, you know, it's like, there are so many good movies that don't get into festivals for whatever reason. Like it doesn't fit the theme that year or, you know, it's too long or it's too short or it does, you know, like there's all these, these reasons. And I think the only reason, you know, that's, that's prominent or primary in a filmmaker's mind when they receive that rejection is that their movie is bad. And, you know, that, that's something I can say that that is like truly, like I think uh, applies to almost every single festival is that, you know, yes, there are bad movies like that. You could say like quantifiably, like this is a bad movie and, you know, for all these different reasons that, that are rejected and that don't play, but there are also, you know, good movies. And, you know, there's probably even some great movies that slip through the cracks, unfortunately. And that's, you know, it's a, it's a human process. And I think that's like a big, a big difference. You know, when we, we hear so much about, algorithms and tech and, you know, kind of how Netflix picks stuff that they would recommend for you or Amazon, like all, all these different places, like, you know, even something like the, you know, college football BCS computer rankings, like, you know, it takes a lot of the human element out of it, but I feel like festivals are one of the last bastions of, you know, true curation and, you know, so it's other humans, it's other filmmakers, it's other, you know, movie lovers who are, are making these decisions. It's not so cut and dried and it's not so clear. A lot of it is a gut instinct and, you know, it's also a resource constraint thing. Like there might not, you know, something came in at the very end of the submission process and there just wasn't, you know, somebody watched it, but, you know, there wasn't enough time maybe to to go through a whole process of, you know, kicking it to this programmer and then back to this programmer and, you know, trying to find somebody, you know, cause usually how a film will get in, if it's not, you know, a clear 
favorite, you know, like everybody loves it and there's no doubt about it or, you know, it's played at other festivals and it's going to screen as, you know, like a festival favorite style film. Like th- that, those are pretty clear, but you know, a lot of the films that are those bubble films uh, usually require a champion on the programming team to, to kind of fight for it and, you know, argue the film's merits at the programming meeting. So, you know, if there's not enough time to be able to do that or to be able to build that coalition, you know, sometimes those good movies just have to be like, well, all right, I, you know, I won't fight for that one, but I'll fight for the, you know, so, so it is like, it's a, it's a really, there's negotiations that go on. It's uh, you know, I, I feel like that's the kind of thing if filmmakers, if there's a way to bleep out the titles of the films, just to protect the filmmakers, I think, you know, I think doing like a live stream from inside, you know, the programming room at a festival would be, you know, one of the most insightful things. And, and also like one of the, the ways to like alleviate a lot of, you know, concerns that filmmakers might have about how that process works. Because like we, you know, discussed earlier, maybe on, on an email about, you know, it is sort of this, this black box kind of like, you know, something goes in, you don't know what happens. And then, you know, you get your little slip of paper at the end that says yes or no. And that can be really difficult to sort of process as a, as an artist, I think, um, not knowing, you know, why something uh, didn't make it because, you know, once the film's out, it can get reviewed and then, you know, it's kind of fair game. People can, you know, talk about this and talk about that, but, you know, no, no programmer would, would denigrate a film that didn't get in, um, you know, online or, you know, on Twitter or something like that, you know, that I don't, I haven't seen anybody do that, but, you know, I, I think most programmers would respond to a legitimate request from a filmmaker for more information or to discuss, you know, why it didn't get in. But usually what happens is that when those, those emails go out, you know, the, the only response that comes back and not from everyone, of course, but, you know, from a handful are really kind of like vitriolic, you know, you guys don't know it, you know, it, it becomes like a really negative, uh, you know, discussion or conversation. And that's, that's difficult. And I know, you know, cause those emails go out, the, the majority of them go out under Beth's uh, name. And so she has to deal with, you know, filmmakers, you know, getting angry at her about that stuff. And, you know, she doesn't take it personally, of course, but it's still like, it wears on you psychologically. So I, I feel like that's, one of the real negative parts of, you know, kind of programming is that you can't, you can't win. <laughs> if you program something that's challenging, the audience might think, you know, ah, we don't like, you know, the audience that, you know, speaks with their, you know, their, their, their pocketbooks or their wallets. And, you know, if you decide to pass on something because it might not be a good fit for that particular audience that your festival is serving, you know, then the, then the filmmaker, you know, uh, could get angry. And, you know, so it's like, you know, I feel like a lot of times programmers, for as much fun as it can be sometimes, it's also kind of this, uh, you know, position that's kind of fraught with a lot of, uh, you know, potential like interpersonal, <laughs> uh, dangers. <laughs> yeah. It's tough to have 8,000 people hate you all at once. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. Um, well in the spirit of sort of pulling back the curtain on that programming process, uh, some of the questions that came in early via email, um, expressed a lot of curiosity in the nuts and bolts of the screening process. Can you maybe talk a little bit, I don't want to get too far down in the weeds, but can you talk a little bit about 
um, the circumstances under which you watch movies and what your personal sort of process is when you first sit down to watch something you've never seen before? Yeah, that's a great question. So most of the time, so for instance, like sometimes we'll see something up on the big screen because we'll be at another festival. And that usually means that the film has made it through, you know, some set of filters and it's, you know, considered, you know, kind of in play for, you know, the festival circuit. And so for instance, like just coming back from Sundance, like when I'm watching stuff, like I'll see it with an audience on a big screen with good sound and everything. And that's, that's great. That's, that's really good, especially for the filmmaker because that's how they, you know, most likely intended it to be seen. But you know, the, the majority of the time that, you know, kind of the reality, you know, most of the time, I think across the board is that programmers are at best watching it on a television screen of varying size, or most likely watching it on a laptop. So I've never really watched a screener on my phone. Um, but I'm not opposed, like, you know, I feel like it's a, you know, it's, people will, will vary on their opinions about this. And I think when there were, you know, there were a lot more DVD submissions, uh, you know, I had a lot more opportunity to watch it on a television screen. So mine's like a 32 inch screen. It's not huge. Um, but you know, I watch a DVD or a Blu-ray, you know, like a physical media submission on that screen and have a little space between, you know, like, it's a little bit different, but most of the time now these are screener links uh, via Vimeo. So often what I'll do is I will start playing it on my laptop and then use uh, uh, Google's Chromecast to, to put it up on my television. So, um, you know, and then you, you know, you deal with, you know, the streaming capabilities of the internet connection and, the processing power of the computer, you know, all these different things. And, you know, usually they look fine. Like the, you know, the screeners look fine on, you know, like they'll play in uh 720 uh, PhD, you know, so they, they look good. They look good enough. And from my perspective, you know, I'm not so concerned. Like, like I will watch, especially from like an alum of SIF, you know, and if it's close to the deadline, I'll watch a picture lock cut. Like I, I feel pretty confident, you know, without like, like, sounding you know like i'm bragging or something but but i feel pretty confident in my like ability at this point my instinct or my intuition to to see something at the picture lock level where it's not going to change the story at all and know like how this could play to an audience or you know is it you know quote unquote worthy or is it ready for a festival like sif or you know, anywhere, right? Like, like SIF is just bigger. So it has more options, more thing, you know, more films to choose from. But, you know, I see almost every screener that comes through says that it's temp sound, uh, not color corrected, missing visual effects, you know, some of those, those things like that. But, you know, I think like a programmer like myself, for instance, who's like more focused on the story and the, like the uniqueness of the voice and, you know, sort of like, is this like a, a new perspective that we're looking at or that we're being treated to, you know, I think all of those every time will trump, you know, whether or not like your color grading looks good at this point, or, 
you know, your score is not perfect, but it's close. Um, the only thing I think where that could be a drawback is if you made, you know, like a science fiction or a horror film or something that relied on visual effects and they weren't there yet, that, that, that could potentially take somebody out of the viewing experience. If, you know, like an actor is responding to a threat or, you know, something that's supposed to be on screen and there's nothing on screen, you know, that, that could potentially uh, be a distracting factor. And I would say if you have a film like that, then I would definitely, you know, wait until like, you know, the basics of the effects are in there and ready to, ready to be viewed. But, you know, the, the films definitely don't have to be perfect. And I would, I would feel like a, a big believer in the perfect being the enemy. And most people say the good, but I've upgraded it to like the pretty good or very good. <laughs> the good enough. So, yeah. Right. Like you don't want to send in something that's just like, well, it's, you know, it did my best and you know, it could be better, but I'm not going to work anymore on it. But more like, you know, this is very close to what I'm, you know, will show, you know, in an exhibition format, but you know, I want to get this deadline because I don't want to wait a whole other year. And I think if you're on that sort of cusp or, you know, like right on that line, you know, then I think it's great to send in something that, you know, that is uh, more of a, you know, work in progress to an extent, but you know, it's like 90% there. So I would definitely like not send in a rough cut because, you know, when you see a rough cut that, that may change, like the picture may change the, you know, everything about it might be different. So, or a lot of things about it might be different. So, so I would say like, hold off on a rough cut, but once your picture locked and you, you know, you're progressing through like the more formal stages of post-production, you know, I think that, you know, is, is really like a, a time when, you know, it's ready to be seen by people, especially people that you, you know, have played at a festival already or have a relationship with. So. Yeah. I think the the fatal mistake that gets made is progressing to that post-production stage before you're really confident about your, your picture lock. Like yes. a lot, I see a lot of filmmakers not, they know there's something wrong with their film. They know the story is not perfect and it's sort of scratching away at the back of their brain, but they don't know how to see, see how to fix it right away. So they keep going. And then after they've done all the expensive stuff, they realize, Oh, I should have put this scene at the beginning. And, and then it's too late. They've already submitted to festivals. And yeah, exactly. So, you know, and, and that's, I think like the main part of the question is like how I watch the films, which kind of led to, you know, sort of like what's being watched and, and kind of like at what stage it's being watched. But, you know, so like, just to like formally answer the question, like most of the time it's on my laptop. A lot of the time it's on my television, but you know, it's never on my phone. And sometimes, you know, if, if it's, you know, a good situation, it's a film that's already on the circuit, you know, it's on a big screen, but you know, we really don't have the the chance or the opportunity to watch, like, you know, people don't submit things in 35 millimeter anymore to be screened, you know, by a projector, you know, by a projectionist in a theater. So, you know, it's, it's pretty much like how we consume most of our content, you know, on, on laptops and, and smaller screens than, than what are typical in a, a movie theater. Right. You've already said that uh, most of the stuff that you see for Seattle is, pre-screened for you. So you're seeing what has already been sort of approved by that first line and and passed up to you. Um, Can you describe the trust that you have in those pre-screeners? Because I I feel like filmmakers uh, don't have that same kind of trust. And it would be nice to hear your perspective on that. Yeah. So that's another good question because 
I actually have my own team of handpicked uh, pre-screeners that that watch the the U.S. indie films. So I have a, a high level of trust in those pre-screeners, but I also uh, will often pull stuff off of the submission pile that may or may not have been pre-screened just as, because I want to, you know, I, it's not that I don't trust the pre-screeners, but I also want to, you know, have the opportunity to discover something. So, you know, I'll take the pre-screeners recommendations and I'll look at their feedback and their sort of, you know, notes about the film. But, you know, when it comes down to it, I, you know, I like to have like a, you know, like a really kind of strong hand in the the programming process, especially for the the catalyst program and the the larger new American cinema section. So like I will, you know, do whatever I can to see a movie first and, you know, form my own opinion about it. It's not possible, of course, logistically to watch every, you know, me personally to watch every single submitted, you know, U S narrative feature, but I try to get my hands on as many as possible and, you know, then rely on the pre-screeners. So like for me, like I think of the pre-screeners more as kind of like a, like a safety net in a lot of ways to like ensure that, you know, at least, you know, the uh, sort of like the, the compound that has been made between, you know, sort of like the, the, the filmmaker and the festival in that submission process that, you know, that somebody is taking care to watch this and their film is being adjudicated, you know, in a, in a fair manner. And, you know, somebody's getting a look at it. I think that's kind of more how I see a pre-screener. I don't see them as sort of like, making my job easier. It's more that, you know, they're doing due diligence so that a filmmaker, so that a film doesn't get lost in the shuffle. But, you know, so I'll, I'll be pretty, you know, like I get the, you know, I have pre-screeners, you know, email me when they see something that they recommend, uh, you know, so that I can get an early look at it. So it doesn't just sit there on the shelf or, you know, in the queue for a while. And then, you know, time passes. And a lot of times, you know, people will have, you know, really strong reactions early in the process. Like you'll see something, you know, in the beginning of the process. So I'm just starting my, my screening process right now, right after Sundance is usually when I start, you know, digging into the SIF submissions. And, you know, so oftentimes like there is this sort of, uh, I don't know exactly what to call it. There's but like a, a halo effect or something from like the early, early submissions that you're like, oh, this is really good. And then by the time you are two months in, you, you kind of like restack and think like, well, you know, this is maybe that one wasn't as good as I thought. Like, you know, maybe it wasn't a 4.5, maybe it was a four instead of, you know, so I think that kind of is, excuse me, I'm getting a little congested there. Um, you know, I, so I think you have to constantly be sort of like adjusting your scale that you're judging the films on because as you get more and more data points, so to speak, you, you see that like, okay, so here's like the average or here's sort of like the bar that I'm setting. So like for, for SIF, we do like a, a zero to five scale um, for, for each film. So usually a three means that the film is okay. You know, it's like fine, but usually a three doesn't get into the festival. And oftentimes like I'll give a film a 3.5, to keep it, you know, in the mix, but it's still like on the low end. And, you know, I, I think, you know, in the whole time that I've been 
programming. I think only a handful of 3.5s have ever like made it through to the festival, but it all depends on, you know, how good the, the, um, you know, the crop of films is that year because, you know, SIF doesn't program stuff that's not, you know, you know, something that's like two years old or something like that. So, so you also are kind of, uh, restricted by like what's available out there, like on the, the festival market. And, you know, an- another thing that I would say is that like, when I go to Sundance, I don't necessarily go to find like, well, yes, like in our larger new American cinema program, there will be films that played at Sundance and South by Southwest, but uh, you know, in the catalyst program, which is, you know, looking for the newest and the most innovative and, and sort of the perspectives and, and the most unique kind of films that often, you know, have like potentially some commercial limitations, uh, not always, but, you know, it's like, you know, taking more of like a curatorial risk because these movies haven't been vetted. Like last year in the catalyst program, we had six, uh, world premieres and, you know, six out of six world premieres. And I, I also don't like, you know, try to get world premieres because the way I kind of think of it is like, you know, there's a lot of movies out there that could be world premieres. Uh, it's because they haven't been accepted at any festivals. And the odds of that being because they've slipped through the cracks at all these festivals versus they're just not, you know, the, the quality of the film is not that good. You know, the, the odds are much higher in the, you know, the sense of the, the latter than the, than the former. So, you know, I think going to Sundance for me is more about kind of like taking the pulse or, you know, kind of like getting a lay of the land of, you know, indie film in America in 2016. And what do we have? Like, you know, what, what, what does it look like right now? And then, you know, kind of seeing how the submissions stack up against that and, and using that kind of as a yardstick in some ways. And, you know, so, so it's, uh, it's, it's interesting. It's, it's, it's exciting, but it's not, you know, that, that pre-screening process, you know, kind of get back to the beginning of the question is, you know, for, for me, like I said, it's more of kind of like a, a safety net or like a, a way to, to kind of like, you know, make sure that, you know, somebody is watching the films for, you know, and, and checking out the stuff. But, but I, like I said, I try to, to, you know, kind of like act as a pre-screener myself when I'm programming because I don't necessarily like to rely solely on somebody else's opinion um, because even though I trust these pre-screeners and I pick them, you know, myself and I, you know, know what they like and I know what they don't like. And I kind of can, can gauge that, you know, I also feel like, you know, at the end of the process, when the film program is available and people are watching it, you know, it's my responsibility to have picked, you know, six great catalyst films and, you know, 15 more excellent new American cinema films. And, you know, it's not like I can say like, well, the pre-screener liked it or, you know, the pre-screener didn't like it. Like I like to take responsibility, you know, for the program. So. I think there's also a certain joy and discovery, which you sort of referenced earlier. You like to discover films. What's, what's that feeling like? Well, it's great. You know, it's, it's like, uh, you know, it's like that sense of, you know, like that moment of discovery is kind of like, uh, you know, like trying a new food for the first time, you know, and not really knowing anything about it. Maybe you're on a traveling somewhere and you, 
you know, it just all of a sudden you're like, wow, this is amazing. This is so good. You have to try this. And that's like, you know, sort of like, you know, to, to use that kind of, you know, uh, description there for, uh, film programming, you know, it's that, that's that kind of thing. It's like finding this movie and this, you know, this voice and it's distinctive and it's interesting and maybe it's hilarious or maybe it's really dark. And then saying like, wow, I found this, this movie out of this, you know, needle in a haystack situation and you have to see this. And that's sort of, I think what a programmer, you know, kind of does, <coughs> excuse me, which is a lot different. I think than a, than a critic, because like oftentimes a critic, like they may highly recommend something or give something a good review. And that is the, you know, kind of like equal to saying that you have to see this, but you know, more often than not, a critic is saying, don't see this. This is not a good film. This is not a worthy film. You know, don't, don't see this. Whereas I think a programmer, like every film that you program, you want to share with an audience. Like, I mean, there were like all six of the catalyst films last year. Like I couldn't wait to share with the SIF audience. And, you know, it was really gratifying when uh, one of the catalyst films uh, called uh, the film Chatty Caddies won the, the jury prize for, you know, uh, the, the Fopresky jury prize that SIF has. And I think in the last like four years or so, since we've been doing catalyst, I think a catalyst film has, has won the Fopresky jury prize three out of the four years that the program's been in existence. So I feel like that to me is like a really good indicator that I'm finding stuff that is interesting and that it's resonating with other, uh, festival programmers or, uh, you know, curators and, and, and also with the audience. Like, so, so it's, it's a balancing act in a lot of ways, but you know, it's, it's always, you know, that, that moment of discovery, like this is by far, like I would say the next two weeks are probably like by far, like the most exciting of the programming process because, you know, it's like all these like fresh video links and, you know, I get recommendations from, catalyst uh program alumni all the time so like i've got like a growing list like at this point it's probably like has to be like probably at least like 60 or 70 you know filmmakers producers directors couple actors who you know have come to sift with a catalyst film and now you know recommend like i saw this movie in a rough cut and i think you should take a look at it or get it on your radar or you know and then i also use twitter you know as a as a tool to source new films because, you know, people are always talking about like, Hey, we just finished this movie and, you know, you know, we're ready to start submitting to festivals and, you know, maybe they don't think of SIF because it's so big or they, you know, so oftentimes like I will just, you know, tweet, you know, say, Hey, you know, if it's ready to be submitted, you know, we'd love to take a look at it. And, you know, so I feel like, you know, being proactive as a programmer is, you know, not the only way, but it could be one of the better ways to ensure that you are seeing, you know, as many of the newest, most interesting uh, films that are out there because, you know, kind of do it in a passive way where you're just waiting for things to be submitted or you're waiting for a pre-screener to finish watching stuff so that you can start watching stuff. You know, I don't want to say it's lazy programming, but, but it's, it's definitely more of a passive process. And I feel you know, the good programmers and the, the good film festivals are, are actively programmed. I think there's a, a 
<clears throat> a tension uh, between filmmakers and programmers and audiences around the idea of premieres. Um, certainly, you know, when you have a world premiere to offer, that's something you can offer to a festival that is, you know, that, that that's valued. Like there's a certain prestige to having a certain number of world premieres, but then program for programmers, I think it's less about prestige and more about um, the, the discovery aspect. Right. But then I think there is also some pressure from audiences and maybe from other people on the festival staff and marketing or whatever to, to have those premieres um, or maybe to, to not have so many premieres if what they're looking for is audience favorites. Um, do you feel that tension in, in the work that you do? Oh yeah. All, all the time. Like I think, you know, when it comes to a premiere, probably the, the most important reason for a premiere. And I say that in quotes kind of, and with a grain of salt is, you know, to be able to list the number of premieres in the press release that goes out about, you know, the festival's program that year. And just confirming the worst fear of every filmmaker listening. <laughs> well, right. And that's, you know, well, here, well, here's the good part of that though, is that that is solely driven by, you know, what would be the, the festival marketing or publicity team, because, when we meet in, in our programming meetings and, you know, like I just had this discussion with Beth uh, either on the way to Sundance or while we were at Sundance, but about how, you know, just kind of thinking about like, what's the, the point of world premiering a so-so film when you could offer, you know, like a, a, a really great festival platform to an amazing film that had already screened at maybe one or two other uh, festivals. So, you know, from my perspective, it's really about the movie and the story and the, you know, the film and the filmmaker it, it, and, and as any catalyst filmmaker will be able to tell you, I would believe is that I've had a number of conversations where, you know, they were like, well, in fact, I mean, here's a good example. There was, there was uh, a filmmaker, that had a film uh, and made an offer to, uh, you know, to screen at a festival that happened like a month before SIF. And that would have been, you know, that was the world premiere of the film. And, you know, they were like, do you guys have a requirement for premieres or do you, and SIF has no requirement for premieres. I can say that, you know, just straight up. And what I said to the filmmaker, and this was, Three, this was the first year of the Catalyst program, I, I think, that, you know, you got a, you know, a bird in the hand kind of situation. It's like, you've got a, an offer. It's a legitimate regional festival. Like, I, you know, you know, your producers, they like, if you're going to screen there, that's good. And if you make that decision, I want you to be able to make that decision without any pressure from, you know, me, especially, you know, and SIF, you know, to be included in that decision, like decide like where you want to. And if you want to have an early start on the festival, like whatever that looks like. And the film did end up uh, world premiering at this earlier festival. And that did not affect my decision. Like I still screened it in the catalyst program. So like if, if I like a movie, you know, I'm not going to, I don't care if it's a world premiere or not. Um, 
And I feel like that is a huge, a huge issue, in my opinion, on, you know, the festival circuit. And I feel like there, there are often sort of, you know, kind of like territory, you know, kind of like uh, lines drawn in the sand, let's say, uh, between, you know, big, big festivals saying, well, if you screen here, we won't screen you here, you know, and you have to choose. And I think what that does is it puts the filmmaker in a really terrible position because, you know, from my perspective, you know, festivals are here to support filmmakers, you know, not the other way around. Like I've often thought that like, you know, festivals need filmmakers making movies and submitting them more than, you know, a filmmaker needs any one individual festival, you know, to, to support them. So, you know, I, I think like festivals, you know, should play a role that is a support role and that is, you know, in whatever way possible, that kind of like a nurturing or a, a cultivating role and not a role where it becomes like a, you know, sort of like a, <clears throat> an adversarial relationship between a filmmaker and a festival over a premiere, you know, that's, that's pretty ridiculous. So, you know, like I said earlier, like, yeah, some film festivals like to, to say like, we've got X number of premieres and that, you know, but, but all that, like, like I said, you know, there's a lot of world premieres out there just waiting to be, you know, plucked, but, oftentimes they've been passed over for good reason. And, you know, so, so just to say something's a world premiere, you know, I don't think carries as much weight with me, um, you know, as saying this is a really good movie that I believe in, you know, and that's why we want to show it to you. And it's screened at a couple other festivals, but who cares? <laughs> that's a, a good response. And I don't, uh, I think every programmer you could talk to would give a slightly different answer to that question based on, you know, where their festival lies in the calendar year. I mean, SIF is in the summer, which is sort of outside the usual spring and fall seasons for festivals. Yeah. So I imagine you guys have less competition, um, at least around the, that time frame for, for premieres. Is that correct? Yeah, but but we also I feel like when SIF happens, so it's like the middle of May to the middle of June approximately, and by that time, uh, Sundance has had their pick, Slam Dance has had their pick, South by Southwest has had their pick, Tribeca has had their pick, and now um, you know LA uh, Film Festival just changed their dates; they moved them up earlier, so so they'll have had their pick and like often what we would kind of run into is like a filmmaker being caught between, you know, the opportunity to premiere at SIF or at LA. And, you know, it's just, you know, so, so I don't think like SIF is in like a very enviable position, like when it comes to like the festival calendar, because so much stuff happens before that, you know, if, even if we, so if we wanted to try to like focus on premieres, it would kind of be a moot point because they, the good films wouldn't be available. But that said, there is, there are so many films that slip through the cracks all the time that turn out to be, you know, jury prize winning features and audience favorites and best of SIF selections. And, you know, so, so I think, you know, the calendar is, is kind of more of like an arbitrary, you know, kind of like, framework that's kind of laid over the festival process and you know i don't think it really matters and sif you know for even being you know 43 years old and a huge festival 
I think in the festival industry or the filmmaking industry, uh, it's still seen as a regional festival because there's not a, there's no market associated with it. Like people aren't buying films out of SIF. Although I can tell you that, uh, there's been a number of catalyst films that have been screened by their eventual buyers at SIF and went on then to, you know, acquire the film because of that SIF screening. But, you know, it's not like there's ever like midnight bidding wars going on at, for any film at SIF. So it's not seen as like a, a marketplace or a, you know, sort of like the way, you know, Toronto or Cannes or, or Sundance or, you know, even South by Southwest, all, all those are seen by. So, so I think all those factors kind of play into it. It's kind of like a, you know, a really, uh, a mix of all these different factors that, you know, all bear, you know, or weigh on kind of which films end up where. So. Well, let's talk about those, those midnight bidding wars, um, because you've been pretty outspoken on, uh, on other shows about, um, the, the black swan effect, which we can talk about a little bit, but this year Sundance saw the biggest, <laughs> biggest acquisition, uh, of a film, um, at any festival when birth of a nation sold to Fox searchlight for 17 and a half million dollars. Yeah. Um, then there were reports of Amazon and Netflix throwing around a lot of money at films uh, for films at the festival. How do tentpole acquisitions like that affect filmmakers perception of festivals and of the industry at large? Yeah. So, uh, you know, I think that's a, a great question and it's one that, you know, I'm thinking about, you know, daily and I feel like that's sort of, I, I think, yeah, like <laughs> this, this is one of those things where it's, it's kind of like happening now in the moment. So, so I think a lot of like what might be said or, or ideas, like we don't have all the information that we might need to, to like really form a, like a, like, I think like a thoughtful kind of like opinion about it, but I can say like my gut reaction, right? So like, you know, you read about the $17.5 million acquisition for Birth of a Nation or the the $10 million acquisition for Manchester by the Sea, which is Kenneth Lonergan's new film. And that went to uh, to Amazon. And I read last night, I mean, this is how new this is, but like I saw this article last night in the New York Times saying that, you know, Netflix and Amazon are, you know, have purchased the most, you know, like total number of films, like, I think Amazon or had done four and Netflix had done three. And at that time, you know, the Fox search like deal was not finished. So, but even, you know, not, not counting like dollars, but just like total number of films, you know, it, it looks like it was like Netflix and Amazon had seven and, you know, a traditional distributor such as Fox Searchlight had one. And I think, you know, kind of the way I looked at it last night is sort of like, we're going to see that as the new normal, in my opinion, because there's so much cash that has been generated at these online, you know, uh, you know, non-brick and mortar websites that, that are able to, to like, they'll just, there, there's more money there. There's not as much overhead necessarily as there is at a traditional distributor. And there's a lot more access, you know, I think Beasts of No Nation is a good example that you could still do, you know, theatrical screenings, but you know, the 
most of the focus is on, you know, generating new subscriptions for Netflix and, you know, the reach that Netflix has in, in that specific case. So I think, you know, this is one of those sea change moments that we're witnessing here where you've got online distributors that are, that have huge platforms that have huge reach and a lot of money to, to throw around buying films. Like, like I think, I think 17 and a half million from Fox searchlight. I think that was probably like a huge stretch for, for Fox searchlight to pay 17 and a half million. I think, you know, for like Amazon to pay 10 million, I think that was probably a drop in the bucket for them. And I think we're going to start. So, so what I think we'll see is that, you know, you'll, you'll start seeing more and more of these $10 million acquisitions, but they're going to be films that have something that they can sell. Right. So, you know, Lonergan's example, I think is a really interesting one because, you know, it has Casey Affleck, Mark Ruffalo, Kenneth Lonergan has a track record as an award-winning filmmaker and playwright. And, you know, apparently it's a really good movie. So, so I think it would have been unheard of a few years ago to pay $10 million for that film. That would have been, you know, probably like a two and a half million dollar acquisition. But I feel like the risks for online platforms are much different and much lower than the risks for a traditional distributor like Fox Searchlight. So, you know, I hope Searchlight's, you know, bid pays off and that's a a big, you know, it sounds like a great movie. I didn't get a chance to see it at Sundance, but, you know, I think like those, so like what we'll see is like, we'll see, you know, kind of the, the bidding wars of old transferred. So like the numbers will go a little bit higher and I think there'll be more of those, like the, you know, the pyramid kind of at the bottom there, like the pyramid might get bigger with the 17 and a half million dollar bids, you know, at least for a little bit. And I think it'll get wider at the bottom with the $10 million bids. But I, but I also think that those bids will still be made on what would be considered safe bets for, um, you know, based on, you know, indie film track record and comparables kind of. So, you know, it'll still have to have the stars. It'll still have to have, you know, something that they feel they can sell. Whereas I, I feel like, you know, when you talk about black swans, like I think, you know, birth of a nation is certainly a black swan. And, and, and I wouldn't necessarily consider, uh, Lonergan's to be, because I feel like that is like a, a movie that you would expect at a film festival and expect, you know, to sell and have like a market at the art house. But, you know, for, for me, at least, you know, it seemed like Birth of a Nation was more of, you know, something that came out of, you know, people knew about it, but it was still like a, you know, a, a big surprise when it kind of landed in the way that it did. And, you know, so, but, you know, I think when it relates to, you know, the truly independent filmmaker, um, you know, I think it's, you know, that's such a, a fluid definition. And I think, you know, a lot of the films, like almost all of the films at Sundance that I was, you know, like kind of like did any sort of like cursory research on, like you could trace them to an executive producer that, you know, had some sort of clout or, you know, like there was always like an origin story. It's like, like, I mean, I'm sure there's one out there and maybe somebody, you know, will do this research and find it. But, you know, like the truly independent film that came from, you know, an unknown filmmaker in Nebraska, you know, 
was that film at Sundance? I don't know if, if there was, there might've been one of them and it was probably a short, but you know, so, so I think when it comes to sort of like the black swan theory, I don't think that is still going to affect, like, I think most independent, you know, almost all independent filmmakers should look at themselves as the average case, like I've said, and sort of as the white swans, like we're all, you know, that average scenario and how can we improve our chances at success without the hopes of, you know, a 17 and a half million dollar acquisition at Sundance, because I still feel like that is not the norm. Although I think we'll be seeing a lot more of those $10 million acquisitions um, just because I think money has a different value (laughs) to uh, a streaming or an online platform than it does to, you know, a a traditional uh, distributor. So it's interesting. I mean, I don't think there's like a really clear cut answer at this point, but, you know, I think it's really fascinating because you could also look and say, you know, these are record breaking deals, but you know, what is sort of like, what's the average price paid for, you know, the the average film when you take out those outliers. So, you know, somebody could say like, you know, there were, you know, 80 films that were bought at last year's Sundance, but they were probably all, you know, acquired for like no minimum guarantee. And, you know, many of those filmmakers probably never saw a dime. Whereas this year, you know, maybe there were only seven or eight films, but, you know, on average they sold for $8 million. So that would give, you know, if somebody were looking at that data saying like the average film at Sundance, you know, in 2016 sold for $8 million. You know, if you didn't know anything else, you, you know, as a independent producer, you'd say like, well, we obviously have to find a way to get a film at Sundance because on average, those films are selling for $8 million. But if you look deeper, and said, well, how many films actually sold at Sundance? And you say there's only eight films that sold. And if the average is $8 million, that means that there are, you know, however many other films that were in the festival that didn't sell. So, you know, I feel like it's all about like, kind of like looking at the whole picture for, for the data to be able to, de- to de- determine, you know, what the trend is or, you know, how that impacts you as a low budget filmmaker, especially like I wouldn't expect a low budget film to be selling for $17 million unless it is like, you know, the most amazing movie ever made. Yeah. I, you know, as we talk about this, I I sort of imagine this scenario where there's a guy who's five and a half feet tall and wants to be six feet tall. And he hears that, you know, 10% of the people who get hit by lightning gain five inches in height. <laughs> and so yeah. you know, he's going to go out and figure out how to get hit by lightning, except he lives in the desert. It's like, you know, it's, it's such a, a crazy set of circumstances, but you know, you, you already know that guy in Nebraska. You've met that guy in Nebraska a bunch of times at the festival. I know a guy who's in LA now, but um, he's from Oklahoma and he's been plugging away. He's made, I want to say five or six low budget features. I'm sure the latest of which, you know, has been submitted to Seattle. If you want that guy from Oklahoma, I got him for you. But you know, the truth is you see 10, 20 of them a day, probably. Yeah. But I still want that, you know, (laughs) I still want to know more about that, you know, because Uh, I will, I'll, I'll send you his name in his film uh, a little later. (laughs) Yeah. No, that's great. And I feel like this is a, 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 you know, an example of what I was talking about before is, you know, 
you know, I think a lot of times people would be like, yeah, you're right. There is that guy. And, you know, and then just continue on with the conversation and, you know, but I, but I feel like to be like, you know, like a, an engaged programmer, you know, it's sort of my responsibility if I'm going to be, you know, programming for SIF and representing SIF and representing myself as, you know, a film lover and a programmer, then, you know, it's sort of my responsibility to say, well, that's a great story. And I'd also like to know more. And I would like to see that film. So <laughs> I, I also have the voice of Emily Best in the back of my head, who is, has, uh, is now the, my personal voice of feminism, who's saying, what about the girl from Oklahoma? <laughs> yeah, 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 of course, of course. Well, I might have said that, but, you know, I, all the time filmmaker it, to me is like, like, I love to find, like, especially finding a, like a new female voice is even more exciting, honestly, because I feel like there's not as many female filmmakers in general, but I feel like they're also oftentimes like not getting the platform that it's so easy for, you know, somebody like myself, for instance, like a white male filmmaker, you know, I'm not really a filmmaker anymore, but you know, a white male, like, I think there is that definite like male privilege, white privilege, like all those kind of things. So you know, I'm glad you brought that up because I think that that is, you know, something that has to be taken into account and, and, you know, film programmers should be aware of, you know, sort of is like, how is this panel shaping up? Like, do I have, you know, enough diverse voices on here that are talking about things from different perspectives than the majority perspectives? So, yeah, I think that's absolutely something that should always be top of mind. Yeah, it's a it's a big discussion in the industry press right now uh, yeah. around Sundance and the Oscars and all that. Yeah, I, I would love to talk for another hour with you about that, but we've got some questions from listeners. Great, um, that I'd love to get to. Um, and uh, a couple of people sent this one in, so I want to get to it first, and that's around um, cover letters, uh, whether you actually see them. Um, in what context you see them and whether they should even bother to write them. Yeah, that, that's a great question. And that's one I've heard myself from filmmakers. And I don't know why, like there must've been like some article that was written or, you know, I don't know what about, you know, the importance of including a cover letter, but, you know, honestly, like I, I, I don't see any utility in a cover letter when it comes to a film, because you could write the best cover letter and, you know, it could be the most like generous and, you know, just what a, what a great person this, you know, filmmaker is that sent in this, this film, but it's, it's only ever comes down to how good the movie is. And, you know, a cover letter is not going to do anything in my opinion to alter the content of the film, like make it seem like, and if it does, like, I, I feel like that's for the, you know, it's, it's for the worst in a way, because, you know, then an outside factor is sort of influencing, you know, the, the reading of the film itself. So, you know, I would say, you know, for a filmmaker, my advice would be to focus your energy on, you know, researching the film festivals that you think would be a good fit for your film instead of spending any time to write, you know, a creative cover letter or a you know, a personalized cover letter. And if you have a relationship with, you know, a programmer or, you know, somebody at a film festival, then I feel like, you know, all you would need to do is just check in with an email and, you know, to the, to, to the, you know, 
you know, the way of, you know, I'm trying to think of the way that this might look, but you know, just saying like, Hey, just, you know, checking in, hope everything's going well. I just want to let you know that I submitted my new film title, uh, you know, to your festival this year. And, you know, I hope you get a chance to, to give it a watch, you know, give it a look, uh, you know, all best Brad, you know, like that's all it would require if you wanted to go that far, you know, but I think a, a cover letter, you know, the odds of it being seen by the specific programmer that's watching the film, like I think it would have to, you know, you'd have to address it specifically to that person. And then the, you know, the programming coordinator would have to be able to, you know, open the package and send it, you know, to the, you know, it goes in the mailbox for that programmer at the, at the festival headquarters. And then, you know, the programmer's watching a lot of stuff on online and they might come in, you know, three weeks after you sent the, you know, this, this cover letter. So, you know, and, and the same, like, I know it's easy to send, you know, add a cover letter, you know, feature in without a box or film freeway. But again, uh, that, that, that's one of those things, like even when they are attached to the submission, you know, in that, you know, digital package, you know, I often won't notice like where the cover letters that, you know, you're supposed to access the cover letter or, you know, sometimes the cover letters are poorly written and it, it's almost like a negative thing, you know? So I feel like, you know, when you look at it, like all the different outcomes from a cover letter submission, I, I would say like, you know, the odds are against you that it's going to help your, your film in any way. And, you know, honestly, it shouldn't really help your film because I, like, I don't mean this in a negative way. I do care if you're a nice person, but it, it doesn't influence, you know, how I look at your film. If, you know, you come across as being humorous or, you know, a gentle soul or a kind person in the cover letter, you know, that's great. Good, good for you. And I'm glad. And, you know, I would, you know, love to meet you at some point, but, you know, it's not going to influence whether or not the film gets into the festival in, in my opinion. Yeah. I think the opposing view is that if you don't even try to acknowledge the fact that you picked this festival for some reason, then it's sort of viewed as you didn't care enough to even say hello, you know? And I think that matters more on without a box where when you click on a film's title, the, the cover letter is the first thing you see right before you can click through the online screener. But honestly, you know, uh, having a wall of text that basically says nothing is almost as bad as writing nothing at all. Yep. And, you know, and just like that idea of, you know, sort of a filmmaker proving to a festival that like they've done their due diligence and, you know, like to me, I kind of feel like that is just like one more requirement of a filmmaker, like a thing to like another hoop to jump through kind of that to me, I feel is superfluous for, to the whole process. Like, you know, I don't see it personally. I don't take it personally. And, you know, for me, it's like, I got to watch so many movies that I also don't want to read a cover letter, even if it just takes a minute, like, you know, you add all those minutes up, it's just like an extra, you know, it's one of those things. It's like, you know, industry kind of wise, like I, it's definitely not an industry standard and I wouldn't even call it, I'm, I'm sure it's not a best practice. And that's, you know, just my experience of it. But I do feel that like sometimes things get added, like we're going to add this requirement and then everybody thinks it's a thing that you have to do because without a box, put in an option for a cover letter, which, you know, I feel like it's not a job interview. It's like, you know, it really only is about the film. So yeah, I, I think it's, 
it's interesting and yeah, sometimes it's nice to have a personal touch, but it's just one more thing that I feel like a filmmaker already has to do so many things that, you know, a cover letter just seems to me like, good God, just give these people a break. <laughs> okay. I see we have 10 open questions in the Q and a, so we're going to uh, cut it off there. Uh, no more questions at this point. Cause we've got enough to get through. Um, I don't know how much time you have, Brad, but if you want to go lightning round on these, we can. Yeah. Yeah. Let's do that. I got to be somewhere like I think at 1130, but okay. Then let's, yeah. uh, Let's do lightning round for these these next questions. Uh, is it better to wait for a movie to get into a festival and then get legitimate reviews, or does it help to have a bunch of reviews from blogs and smaller online journals when submitting to festivals? Uh, you know, again, I don't think it's it's necessarily one or the other is, is important. Like, I think the odds of having, like, a, like the only way that that reviewer is going to see your film, I guess, is if you send it to them. I think the best way, like, so like, I will answer this in a clear, like, I think the best way to do it is to only submit to film festivals, because if you have a good film, it'll get into some festivals. Like it won't get into, you know, I'd say like, you'd have like a 30% success rate would probably be like a, a solid uh, success rate for a film when it comes to festival submission acceptances, especially if it's a feature like you'll get reviews out of that. And especially like once you know which festivals you'll be in, then you could figure out which blogs or which outlets cover that festival and then say, you know, my film's going to be playing on such and such a date. You know, I'd love for you to, to come and, and take a look at it. If you're, if you're free, I can set a ticket aside for you. And I feel like that's probably the best way to generate reviews because if you just send your film screener, you know, to a blog and, you know, I don't know, like there's so many blogs out there that I feel like, you know, I'm not going to know if this blog, you know, was a friend of the filmmaker or so I feel like it's not going to necessarily influence. Like if you send like a, you know, a sterling review from an unknown blog as part of your submission package or follow up or whatever, that's not, again, like really going to have like too much of an impact. But, you know, if I see that there is a review from a previous festival that's included or, you know, it's a follow up piece or whatever, I just find it on my own by doing some research, which I usually do you know, when there's a film that I watch that I kind of like, I want to see where it's played. I want to see, you know, you know, kind of how it got started, you know, all that kind of stuff. You know, then I think like finding a review on my own that came from, you know, what, what seems to be, you know, like a non preferential source, you know, to the filmmaker, then, you know, that, that could carry not, not weight, but it would be like, okay, like this movie's out there, like it's in play, so to speak, like I said. So, I would say do it that way. Like wait until you're in a film festival and then, you know, do the research and find a, a blog or an outlet that could cover it or review it and give them a, a ticket to the film. And, you know, if they can't make it, then send them a screener. Yeah. Like I think, I think that would be my, my way to approach it. And then, you know, if you don't get into any film festivals for some reason, then, you know, I would say like, you got to do whatever you got to do to like find an audience for your film because you just don't want it like to put all that time and effort and possibly money into it and then just have it just never be seen by anyone. So, you know, I, I would say take the festival route first and then take the, the blog and, and film site route, you know, after if they have to be separate, but you know, you should be able to do festival first and then get reviews as a result of that. Gotcha. Okay. Uh, one down nine to go. Uh, <laughs> is, it, is it a bad idea to send a submission during the late deadline? 
oh, no, it's not a bad idea, but I feel like the best idea is to send it, you know, as soon as you feel like it's ready to be viewed by uh, a programmer or a, a, a critical eye. Because, you know, like late deadlines, yes, there's like a flood of submissions during the late deadline. And, you know, like it's not every one of those gets, you know, a full, you know, three people watching it and discussion and, you know, because I think most festivals, you know, guarantee that one person at least will watch it, if not two, maybe, um, you know, so, so you'll always get the eyes on it that you're paying for, for the submission fee, but you'll have less time for like that kind of discussion. So, so I would say like, you know, if you're just like waiting to, again, like do that color grading or do that, you know, you know, get that temp score just right or the score or whatever, I would say, you know, send that, that earlier version earlier in the submission cycle, then wait until you've got your, you know, color corrected and all this other stuff. And then it's going to be during the late submission period, because I think it's always best to send it earlier as long as it's ready. You know, I, I would say like, there's no reason to procrastinate or, you know, try to make it perfect and then end up sending it the last day of the deadline because you, you know, there's just going to be a huge wave. So the film's really going to have to stand out. You know, it's just, it just becomes more of a numbers game at that point. Right. Do you feel comfortable answering a question about uh, shorts and premieres? Uh, yeah, it depends. Let's hear it. And kind of see. Uh, so for shorts, is there an advantage to having some selection screenings under your belt as opposed to being a world premiere? Or is there maybe a disadvantage or a stigma for a short that hasn't premiered yet? Uh, there's definitely, yeah. So I could say this because it's pretty much the same as a feature, at least with SIF. Um, there's definitely not a disadvantage to not having screenings, but it comes down to, again, like I kind of used that term before curatorial risk where like, you know, it depends, like, will the, the programmer want to take a risk on this film? And the times when programmers do want to take a risk is when it's a really good film. So, you know, that kind of is what sets like, you know, shorts are even more likely to slip through the cracks than features are because there's even more and there's, you know, just so many and different levels of, you know, different types, you know, different levels of quality and everything. So I think, you know, a film that comes to a festival with a track record, that's never, that never hurts it. Like, it's not going to be like, oh, we won't premiere this. I mean, even at Sundance, I mean, there were shorts that I saw that had already played at a number of different festivals, but the Sundance programmers just liked them and, you know, they played at Sundance. So I think, I think, especially with shorts, that idea of, you know, has to be a world premiere or can't be anywhere online. Like, I think that's really kind of fading and it's really more about like, where's the good content? Where, where are the good short films? And we want to screen them regardless of where they've played before. And I think, you know, if you are just hitting the festival cycle, you know, at a certain point and you're, you know, your first round of submissions, it's going to be a world premiere. You know, I don't think that's a bad thing by any means, you know, that nobody's screened it before because filmmakers will see, cause usually there's a place on the, I'm sorry, programmers will see this because usually there's a place on the submission form, you know, that says when it was completed. So, you know, if you say it was completed in, you know, February of 2016, well, then it's pretty obvious that, you know, it, wasn't submitted to Sundance or Slamdance or places like that, that you're seeing this, you know, pretty fresh off the, off the cutting room. So. 
Uh, here's the uh, the perennial question. What if your movie was self-funded and you don't have a lot of money to spend on festival submissions? How would you approach that when emailing a festival to ask for a submission fee waiver? Yeah, so that's a tough one because, you know, festivals really do rely on submission fees and ticket sales, you know, during the festival as a large revenue stream. So, uh, you know, SIF does give waivers, but there has to be a case for it. So usually it's for, you know, a film from a, an alumni of the, the festival who's, you know, had something there before, had a couple things there before, or, you know, has a relationship with the festival. Uh, any, like any Washington state films, I believe don't even have to pay a submission fee. So I think that, and I've, I feel like that's the same at like Austin film festival. And there's like, you know, like a, a bunch of festivals, like that will take, local filmmaking efforts uh, with no submission fee. So, so that's one way to kind of get around that is to, you know, hit up as many festivals in your state that will take films that were made in the state for free uh, with no submission fee. But, you know, when it comes to like, just like cold calling or cold emailing to ask for a submission fee waiver, I would say that those requests almost always are denied because there's just no good reason to do it. Like, everybody has kind of a story about why they need it and everybody has it, you know, like it's, it's like, there's no way to differentiate between, you know, this story or that story. And it's all pretty much the same. You know, we just don't have the money. Can we get a submission fee waiver? And it's just not possible to do that in all those cases. So, you know, not that many waivers are given anyway, and they're usually given to, you know, people that have had a track record with the festival. Like you, you kind of take like a calculated risk to say, yeah, well, this person's, you know, had a film here before we've liked it. We like, you know, her filmmaking style and, you know, that we're going to, uh, you know, take a risk and say, yeah, we, you know, we'll waive the fee because we want to see, your movie because it might be something that is really going to resonate with our audiences and with our programming team. Whereas if you're a completely unknown quantity, it's going to be, you know, it's a lot harder to take that, to make that call and say, yeah, you know, because that somehow then sets you apart from like, it's just, it's just not fair is what it comes down to. And the festival can't afford it, you know, to, uh, to be giving out those fees, fee waivers, because, you know, they need the money, even a festival that's as big as SIF, like, and has like a larger budget, you know, all of that is like, there's a lot of things that go into running a film festival. You have to rent venues. You have to, I mean, it's crazy. So it's, it's not like, you know, it, it's, you know, I don't even want to tell you, like, that's one of the few things I won't say is like how much I get paid to be a programmer. Because like I said, if I ever like figured out how many, you know, what the hourly rate is, it would probably be like 23 cents an hour. So, um, you know, it, those submission fees are, are essential to the operations of a film festival. So I would say, don't, don't even send the email because it's just, yeah, it, it's, I would say it's a foregone conclusion almost that the answer is going to be no. Yeah. Okay. Uh, how about uh, supplementing that income by uh, offering feedback on films for an additional fee? Uh, it seems that there are festivals like Cleveland and DC shorts that are uh, doing, something similar to that. Is that something Seattle's ever considered? Uh, I don't think it's something that they've considered on the, the film uh, side, but you know, I started, you know, as part of the catalyst program, we started doing a monthly 
live reading of local screenplays. And then after a couple of years that developed into the SIF uh, catalyst screenwriting competition, which is in its first year right now. So I've got, you know, a team of readers that are, you know, sifting through all the, all the submissions. And I believe that what we, the way we had it set up, it was a $50 submission fee. And that includes at least one page of feedback for the, for the writer. So, you know, I, I think it's like, I personally, like as a screenwriter, like I would consider myself more of a screenwriter than a filmmaker. And I think, think that, you know, that kind of, uh, you know, kind of extra value for the, you know, the money that you're paying is, is always a good thing. I just think it's because of the number of submissions that we receive for the screenplay contest, we're, 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 we're not as many as we received, you know, as like film submissions. I think it's easier to do it when you have fewer submissions. Um, and then it's also like the expectations of the filmmaker, like, you know, what are they expecting? And, you know, then how do you compensate the the pre-screeners and the screeners and the programmers for doing that? Like, is it, you know, how does that all shake out? So I think it's more of a logistical issue, but like I said, you know, with the, the screenplay competition, it was the first year. So it was something that was really easy to say, this is how we're going to do it. And then we do it. Whereas I think it's a lot harder when you haven't done it that way in a long, you know, forever, and then to start it. So I think it's something that, is, is I think I think it's great when it's possible and I think it's I think it's a real benefit for the filmmakers and it actually does give them some insight into that black box portion of the process but I I just you know I can't speak you know because that's a, a decision that Beth or Carl would have to make but I wouldn't see that happening at SIF anytime soon gotcha so I got a filmmaker who uh, has a political documentary that has um, recently, the, the film itself has not come into the news, but a related matter has come into the news uh, with um, a celebrity of some kind. What's the best way to kind of draw attention to that and maybe tell a festival that, um, you know, the film might have more cultural and political relevance than it did at the beginning of the submissions process? Yeah, so so I think that's a really good question. I feel like that's where you might want to use a follow-up email to, you know, a particular or a specific programmer, if you know them, or, you know, the person that might be listed as the contact for, you know, the submissions application. So this would, this would be a great way. Cause I feel like, you know, instead of, you know, putting in some, like what will most likely be outdated information into a cover letter that I think, you know, sometime during the submission process, especially if something changes that's relevant in a, a really big way like that, I, know I feel like that would be a perfect example when you might want to send, you know, like a four sentence follow up email just saying, hey, you know, my film is about this particular thing. And, you know, here's a link to this. This is becoming a, a big issue. And, you know, I don't know if anybody's watched the film yet, but you know, it's just something to keep in mind, you know, if possible. So, you know, thanks for taking the time to watch my movie. You know, so I think like that kind of just like, you know, you don't want to send like a two paragraph treatise on like, you know, the cultural significance of your film in light of, you know, current events. But, you know, I think like a little follow-up email is a great way to kind of get that on the, the film festival's radar. Is it worth trying to build some sort of, you know, popular, um, 
consent where maybe if you've got a relevant clip in your film, you release that clip on YouTube and try and build some, you know, some viral following. Do you think that influences festivals at all? Uh, so to answer the last question, I don't think it influences festivals and it, you know, that doesn't mean that, you know, festivals like, you know, we're all people like we, you know, might see that, but you know, so it could like, but I feel like, again, like that's that, that clip, is probably coming from the film itself. So it's going to be in the movie. And so I think if it becomes like, you know, a lot of likes or popular or viral, like, I don't think like that sort of thing is going to influence the the festival programmer. But I think if it, you know, ends up like that particular clip having that sort of impact, I'm saying, but you know, if like this thing keeps popping up in the news, you know, I think that it's highly likely that, you know, the festival could say, well, look, you know, this is a, a really interesting and topical uh, aspect here. I think we should, you know, maybe take a closer look at this film or, you know, so I, so I think, yeah, like you, you just never know. Like, I don't, I don't think you could count on it influencing the festival, but I think it would be good to do anyway, just from like a promo and marketing standpoint, you know, for building the audience, you know, for the film in general. So you know, with my smart house hat on, I would say, yes, by all means do that. But as a programmer, I'd say, you know, it may or may not have an impact and most likely wouldn't, but you never know. Okay. Last two. Uh, the first is uh, <laughs> vaguely worded, but uh, pretty, pretty clear. I think Do you have any thoughts on without a box versus film freeway. Ah, yeah. So I feel like uh, without a box has really stepped up its game uh, because of film freeway. And I've used both and I felt like, I mean, I honestly, like, I, I would say like probably like maybe a little bit film freeway is a little bit easier, but not that much. Like, I, like I, I think without a box is really, I think the competition, you know, in that little market segment has, has really been positive for the community of filmmakers because I think what, you know, what film freeway did was kind of give a wake up call to without a box that, you know, they can't, they, they have to improve their platform and they have to evolve and innovate. And I think they've done that to some degree. And, you know, so then I think it just comes down to like a personal preference. So, so I feel like there's a lot of kind of like grassroots support for film freeway because they were, you know, sort of the underdog there. But I also feel like there might be more festivals that are on without a box. So, you know, there's, there's like trade-offs there, but I, but I feel like, you know, I wouldn't, I, I don't think there's anything, you know, positive really that comes out of picking one or the other. I, I think, you know, using both of them, like, cause we've done, you know, festival strategy and submissions for uh, clients in the past. So I've been on uh, without a box and film freeway. And like I said, you know, film freeway might have a slightly better user interface, but I think without a box has more film festivals uh, on it. So you know, it's a trade-off. So you kind of have to, like, I would say like, you know, use both of them. Like, I don't think you have to pick one or the other. And finally from Lewis, uh, d does the festival, the size of SIF care, uh, if the filmmaker is local or nearby, is their promise to attend to have any influence over whether the film gets in or not? Uh, not for a film festival like SIF because SIF has a specific program called Northwest connections that is set aside for, local and Washington state filmmakers. So, and, and around like the, the general Northwest, but it's usually, you know, Washington state. 
And, you know, so like, it's just kind of assumed that those filmmakers will come. But then, you know, when it comes to programming feature films, SIF does provide airfare and accommodations for the director of uh, all the feature films. So it's not like in SIF's case, which is like very specific, like the filmmaker, like that's like, if it's from out of town, the filmmaker will come on SIF's dime and in town, you know, the filmmaker will come because their film screening so close. So I don't think it would, would have like, it's, it's not really like sort of like a way to make your film seem more attractive to the festival because you'll be in attendance uh, because SIF really does everything it can to like, make sure that every selected film, the filmmaker is able to attend. So it's sort of like a, yeah, I think with SIF it's, it's sort of moot. Well, Brad, I want to thank you for being so generous with your time today. This has been amazing. I, I know I got a lot out of it. Oh, cool. This is fun. I, I mean, I like talking about this stuff and, you know, being critical about the process and, you know, cause I feel like that's the only way that you can learn and improve is by taking those like close looks and answering questions and, you know, like trying to like, see, like, does that change your mind about something, you know, or, you know, does it give you a different perspective that you hadn't considered before? So uh, where can people find you online if they've got uh, follow-up questions, maybe on Twitter? Yeah, I think follow-up questions, and I welcome them. You know, please do follow up. Uh, and the easiest way to do that is probably through Twitter. So um, you can, uh, you know, find it just at J.B. Wilkie, W-I-L-K-E is my Twitter handle. And I'll put that in the show notes as well, uh, along with links to Smart House Creative and the uh, uh, SIF website. Um, and pictures of Brad's kid. No, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> uh, thanks again, Brad. This has been a lot of fun. All right. Thanks for having me, Chris. I really enjoyed it. Thanks for everyone who uh, participated and sent in questions. That does it for another episode of the Film Festival Secret Podcast. I'm Chris Holland, your host, and you can find the show notes and subscribe links for the show at filmfestivalsecrets.com slash podcast. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.